Welcome to another episode of the Prime Philosophy Podcast. This week's sponsor is Prime Philosophy Wellness Coaching. Go to www.primephilosophy.com to learn how a combination of ancestral health and ancient wisdom can provide you with peace of mind and peace of body. My guest this week is Olivia Mead. She is the founder of Yoga for First Responders, a job-specific and culturally informed yoga for resiliency training to benefit first responders. She offers training and classes available nationwide. I really enjoyed this conversation with Olivia, and I hope you do as well. I thought we could start with you giving me your background and telling me how you got involved with the fire service. So my background is I was actually a professional dancer. I did, I grew up a ballet dancer and was in musical theater. Um, and so that gave me a very, a really good understanding, um, of the body and kinesthetics and, and really how the body works. Um, and through my practice or my training in dance and ballet, I started to incorporate yoga through my ballet teachers. And um, when I lived in New York City, I was going to Ashtanga yoga every single morning. And around 20 years old, I became a yoga teacher. And quite by accident, actually, because I I never planned to do that. But in Ashtanga yoga, in that specific um, methodology or modality, it's actually the same series every single time. So the teacher didn't show up. There was a mistake with a sub or whatever. And since I had taken class every day, I knew exactly what to do next. And so I went up to the top of the class and said, okay, I'll just tell you guys the next pose. You know, I'll just do that. And then we get our class in. But what I realized is with my background in dance and how much I've been, uh, took yoga my whole life, starting actually when I was very young uh, with my grandmother and my dad, who both practiced yoga for different reasons. My dad was a professional golfer and he practiced yoga actually for the mental aspect of golf. So if anyone plays golf, they know that it's, I think it's 90% a mental game. And so my dad practiced a lot of breath work and and mental concentration for that. So because of my background with that, not only was I giving poses one after the other, but I knew I I could give them tips on what to do. And and isn't that what teaching is, right? Just giving sort of tips from your experience, um, which makes a, a, I think a really good teacher is teaching from your own experience. So when I was up there and I was like, oh my God, I have something to offer, not just repeating poses, but something actually to offer these students. I was like, this, this is something I want to do. So 20 years old, went to yoga teacher training. Um, and, you know, for the, the first, I don't know, nine years of teaching yoga, I did what all the yoga teachers do. They teach in gyms, they teach in studios, they, they teach the westernized yoga, even though my training in yoga is very, very traditional. And I also subsequently studied in India. But when you come to America, the yoga that's expected is the cool yoga, right? The trendy, we're going to meet with our girlfriends, go to yoga and go to Starbucks later. Nothing is wrong with that. That's just our culture around it. Um, But having trained very traditionally in yoga, I knew there was something more to offer there that was totally getting skipped in yoga studios and gyms. So I wasn't very satisfied with, with teaching. Simultaneously, I always, I've had this desire in my heart for a long time to serve veterans and military. I, I, I really believe that everyone should serve their country and their community in one way or another. Some take the military route, maybe some take other routes, volunteering or working with homeless populations in their community, whatever it is. But I think we all should be doing that. Or at least that's what, something I wanted for my life. And um, so I'm like, all right, how can I serve veterans and military um, 
with my time, talent, or, or, you know, money? Like, what can I do to support? And since at that time, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of money. I was, you know, in my 20s in Los Angeles. Um, I wanted to support them through yoga because what I was learning about the military culture uh, was all these statistics of burnout, post-traumatic stress, secondary traumatic stress. And it seemed like all these, you know, needs of the military and veteran culture was something that I knew. I was like, wait, this is the stuff that yoga is a discipline for, is a training tool for. So yoga is a clear answer to this, but what's keeping the two worlds apart? And what I realized was really a cultural differences. So I, I started working with veterans and military first, but very soon after that, um, I kind of had this epiphany of, okay, so there's our, our country's, you know, soldiers that go on deployments, maybe they're in combat, maybe they're, they're not, and they come back to civilian life and we work with, to reacclimate them. I worked in VAs and everything, but then I'm like, there's this whole sort of domestic paramilitary culture that we just expect to be there for us whenever we need them. And they are, you know, and that's first responders. And then they do that for 30 years and they're not on a deployment and then they come home. They're out in, in, you know, on their job and then they have to come home every day whether it's to their family, whether they, you know, even by themselves, I mean, that's, they come home to themselves. So there's also this crucial, crucial need. So I started investigating more in the first responder population and tons of statistics of post-traumatic stress and burnout and sleep disorders and stress-based physical and mental health problems. And again, I'm like, oh my God, yoga, especially the traditional yoga that I studied in India is a discipline for these issues that happen to all of humanity, let alone a humanity or a part of humanity that sees more trauma, loss, death, and destruction one day than many of us will see in a lifetime. Right. Um, and I was like, this is, this is what I have to do. And, and so I Googled yoga for first responders and there not one thing came up. So that's when I was like, all right, well, I got to do this myself then. And, um, I was living in LA, so I called up Los Angeles Fire Department and got ahead of the um, got a hold of the head of behavioral health, and uh, started working with them, and, and that's where that started. So your approach is really focused on the mental aspect with first responders, not so much the physical. Well, it's actually a little bit of both, Nick, because um, the mental and physical are so intertwined that it's really hard to separate them. So if you're working on something mental, you have to include the physical part of it. So, and then the benefits of that, the benefits, like sort of the cherry on top of working the physical is that is, are there going to be um, stronger stabilizing muscles and increased mobility to um, have less injuries and less disability time? Sure. Yes, absolutely. Is that a valuable benefit that we're going to focus on and make sure people know about? Yes. But you're right in the fact that we kind of use that as a, a very nice and valuable byproduct. But what I'm really focused on is why are we experiencing immobility in the first place? That's because stress and trauma lives inside the physical tissues. So you know when you're kind of having like a um, maybe a difficult few weeks, you start feeling it physically, backache, neck ache, stiffness, you know, we all kind of feel that. 
that's because that's where stress and trauma live. So you have to address the physical if you're going to get to the mental and neurological. So what was the initial response when you approached the Los Angeles Fire Department? So the so Dr. Robert Scott, who he's since retired, but he was the head of behavioral health there, the lead psychologist, he already practiced yoga and he knew the benefits of it. So he knew that um, it was going to be valuable. But of course, his number one concern, as you can imagine, is buy-in. Because how are we going to get this alpha male population to do something that has this... Um, connotation of being more passive or more feminine or whatever, but just because of how it's branded and, and marketed in the West. And because I had experience teaching military and veterans already, um, and I had an interview with him and I talked to, um, you know, some, some training chiefs and, and told them what I did and why I did it and what my approach is. And even before I taught vets and military, my way of teaching and the way that I was taught by my yoga teachers is not um, comfy yoga, you know, not kind of softy, comfy yoga. It's pretty disciplined for, for a purpose. And so that's, that's kind of how I taught anyway. And so they were on board. They were on board with me coming to do it. And we were kind of trying to figure out, um, you know, how, the, how we're going to do this approach. I mean, there's no template for it. You know, nothing had really come before it. So we decided to do Tuesdays and Thursdays at the training center for whoever wanted to come. And my promise to them was that I will be doing yoga here Tuesdays and Thursdays from noon to one, no matter what. If no one shows up, I will stay and still do a yoga class so that there's this energy and people can walk by and see that something's happening here. Um, and there was only one time that no one showed up, and that was when they brought a truck in for Taco Tuesday. So I totally get that and understood right. and joined them. Um, Tacos over everything. Ex exactly. We need a shirt that says that. So basically, yeah. once um, it it was it wasn't that difficult to get people to the mat, and once they got to the mat and they realized, oh my god, this is this is doing something beneficial for me. I was I. I was welcomed there and, and it was, and it was great. That's great. And that, that takes a lot of courage and walk me through what the initial session was with these guys. So this was, um, I did it differently then than I do it now. I'll kind of tell you how I shifted and adjusted. So in terms of logistics, the, the Frank Hodgkins training center LFD is just gorgeous and, and beautiful. And I probably didn't realize how difficult it would be to find logistical situations in other departments after this, right? Cause it's this big, beautiful gym and just open space. And it was awesome. Um, so I've been, our organization has been very lucky. So after LAFD, by the way, I formed yoga for first responders as a 501c3 nonprofit. So, um, but even before it was officially formed, uh, Lululemon, um, which I feel like they're the pinnacle of our westernized culture of yoga, right? But they've mm -hmm. also been super, super supportive of the program. And they don't, they've donated several times. And this was the first time. Beautiful blocks and mats. And it's so nice to have a conducive piece of equipment as you know, right? <laughs> that if you have right. really good equipment to work with, that's something you don't have to think about anymore. So they gave really, really big, thick, nice mats um, and they kept them there. And so they lived at the LAFD training center. So initially what I did um, was bring my approach that I had been teaching to veterans to the, the firefighters there and talking with them and kind of feeling it out. 
I realized that um, I needed to tailor the approach a little bit differently because even though they're all part of the warrior culture, the military and first responders, they're still different, different, two different cultures. And even within public safety, each branch also has its own, you know, living culture as well. So I sort of started to, to change and tailor and adjust the, the approach so that it would be more digestible and useful for, for fire service. And I did the same when I started working with law enforcement. Um, Dr. Scott then asked if I would speak to the peer support group on their training uh, day, which I'm, I, I don't know how often they had it, but I remember I did it two or three times in my time with them. And I created a like PowerPoint and I kind of am embarrassed at what my PowerPoints used to look, <laughs> look like compared to what they look now. Cause now we have a professional instructional designer and everything. Um, but you know, I threw together these PowerPoints the best way I knew how with these principles of, of directly saying, this is what we're teaching. This is what we're not teaching. Don't get it confused. Cause the biggest thing, um, whether it's a, someone has that alpha male culture in them or not, even if they're pro yoga, sometimes they still don't know what yoga really is about. Like really, truly. Like, so what are they, you not teaching? Um, well, we're not teaching stretching and we're not teaching relaxing. And a lot of people think that's what yoga is. We're going to sit on a mat. We're going to put on some nice music. We're going to reach for our toes and we're going to lay down afterwards. Mm -hmm. And, um, Although some quote unquote yoga classes do that, which is, and there's no reason why they wouldn't have that. Um, they wouldn't think yoga is like that. There's a lot of yoga classes that are kind of in that direction, but really the true practice of yoga is mastering the mind and having optimal functioning of your entire system. It's not stretching because stretching has this connotation of a sit and reach. I'm going to sit and try to grab my toes, but your spine's all out of whack and you're, and you're so focused on muscles when it's not the muscles at all, but it's the fascia that's creating the immobility and, and you're totally avoiding uh, uh, targeting the immobility that's in the fascia. So we get rid of this word stretching and we're not teaching how to relax because that word relaxation to me also has this connotation of a temporary and false sense of calm. Because when you think of, hey, I'm going to go chill, I'm going to go relax. What do people do? They, they sit on their couch, maybe they grab a beer and they watch TV. That's what I think of relaxation. But what we are doing is regulating the nervous system. And the difference is, I don't I don't think anyone wants to be at work or on scene relaxed. What they want to do, what they want to be is calm, in control, and focused. So you want control of your own nervous system. And we're not, and also another thing we're not doing is eliminating stress. Stress is good. We need stress to do high performing, you know, feats and action. Well, so what we're doing is we're taking stress and if we have the tools to be able to process it in a manner so it works for us and makes us better versus get, keeping us out of control or deplete us, which then leads to the sleep disorders, the secondary traumatic stress, the burnout, all of that stuff. So what we're teaching is tools to process stress, tools to build resilience, tools to regulate the nervous system. And all of this is going to enhance performance and longevity of a career. So that's the stuff that I'm explaining so that when we get to the yoga mat 
everyone knows why we're there and we're all on the same page and have the same mission. So you mentioned that you are not teaching the comfy style yoga. Is that the main difference between Eastern and Western yoga is the Eastern is more disciplined? I think that's, a, I think it, if I were to generalize, yes, I think that is a big thing. That is a huge difference between Eastern and Western, how the Western has adopted it. Um, because when I stayed in India, you know, there's, there's a job to do. And part of how you approach the yoga is part of the yoga. So mm -hmm. if, um, I'll give you an example. Sometimes, and again, I'm generalizing here, but it's to make a point, right? Um, sometimes in Western yoga studios, if some, if something, oh, it doesn't feel quite right, or I can't, I can't reach for the floor, do this. They're, they're offered a modification, which is fine. We do that too. We call them ad adaptations of poses, right? And there's a time and a place for that. And we have um, different reasons why you should adapt, which I can talk about later. But the, so the, the essence of the yoga practice itself is meant to improve you all around, all of you, not just physical, and also heal from injuries if you have them and make you stronger. So by continuing to um, put crutches around your yoga practice, whether it's like a yoga teachers might say, you know, okay, go to child's pose if you want to, or do what feels good. Doing what feels good isn't always right, isn't always going to improve. Do you know, you, and you probably know this from, you know, just any sort of training is when you're really improving, do you feel good? Do you feel comfortable? No. I mean, you're, you're in, even if it's mental sort of anguish and, and I'm, and let me be clear, I'm not talking about acute pain leading to injury. That's not what I'm talking about. That's when you do adapt if there's a, an injury or something going on, but I'm actually talking more than the physical, but the, the, the mental discipline of it is not going to be comfortable. And a big thing that I see that, you know, I get on my students about, and at first, I even had a student tell me that at first she was put off that I was on her so much about this and then later realized why. And I think that's a good sign of a good teacher when you're actually put off by them first <laughs> because they're trying to make you better. They're taking you out of your comfort zone. So if you notice this, go next time you go to a yoga studio, I just want you to watch the room when the sun salutation is over or what we call a drill some people call flow right when when the when the exercise is over watch everyone and they all start fidgeting they fix their hair they pull their shirt down they grab a bottle of water they're moving and fidgeting that's a sign of an undisciplined mind what's so disciplined is after you've done the drill to sit there or stand there and just focus on manipulating your breath. Now you've got control of your mind and your nervous system, and that's the hardest thing you can do. So in a lot of Western culture of yoga, they'll just let them move around, grab water, do whatever you need to do. And then we're going to start, and then we're going to work on warrior two. Well, the warrior two is completely useless to work on if you don't have that mental discipline as your foundation. Mm -hmm. So it's meant to be challenging. You have to be, we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Your yoga is almost like a form of mental, like a mental hormetic stressor. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You got it right, right away. Like I heard, um, an Olympic, uh, I think it was for figure skating, a trainer that said true training is being uncomfortable and enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And I really like that because enjoyment, I'm not talking about skipping down the street. I'm talking about, wow, this sucks 
but I am getting better and I have the tools of getting better and I'm going to lean into it and dive into it. And you're absolutely right that the only way to train resilience and stress is by training under stress. So we're creating a manufactured and safe stressful environment so that you can watch yourself, watch my mind, watch my nervous system. How do I react to, because when I'm giving you stressors, whether it's a physical challenging thing or a mental challenging thing on the yoga mat, I don't care about your warrior two making, I don't care about your down dog. What I care about is that what that represents, that challenge on the yoga mat represents a challenging leadership situation. Maybe you have conflict with your crew. Um, maybe, you know, maybe you don't do well in confined spaces, whatever your challenge is on the job or in life, you can work on it on the yoga mat, because when you're in that confined space, you need to already have the tools to get through it. You can't start training when you're on the fire ground, you're supposed to already be trained, you know? Mm -hmm. We're going to give you these acute stressors that make you better able to handle the chronic stress. Correct. Correct. Right. Yep. So how long are the sessions and how you said initially you were doing twice a week? What do most fire departments adopt as far as like a program? So I would say for fire departments specifically, the the most successful type of program that I've led. So that so that was twice a week for one hour and it was open to anyone, included including administrative administrative staff. So really anyone could come who was personnel of Los Angeles Fire Department. And we had uh, tons of people mixed group there. What I think is very successful um, for implementation is one in the academy because it's a proactive tool. You get a uh, same group of people for 12, 14 weeks, and you can really see their improvement. So that's a great way of implementing it. Um, and that's typically seen in the fire academy I've done once a week and another academy I did twice a week. And it was always during their PT time. For uh, line firefighters, I think the best way to do it is they would, one of their training days, they would, you know, unplug hose drills and plug in yoga. And I would teach once a week per shift. So I was teaching there three times a week and the members there were getting it once a week. And I thought, and I think that's a very successful way to do it. Um, I know it can be difficult, um, especially with union rules, to, to have it a mandated class, but I always think that that's just the best way to do it because a lot of my students who get the most out of it were the most against it or scared of it or whatever, not into it um, at the beginning. And if you let it be vol- voluntary, they're never going to experience a tool that they didn't even know they needed. Um so, so I, I appreciate that approach. Is there an education aspect for us to carry over off duty, you know, to continue the process at home or at different studios? So a couple things with that is, um, and it's a great question because what I'm teaching and what we teach with yoga for first responders is traditional yoga. We're just tailoring the language and tailoring it to be more culturally informed and job specific. So if you went to a yoga studio, what you've learned from me, you can apply, even if the yoga teacher is saying it a different way. Like we don't use Sanskrit. We don't play music, things like that. We kind of adopt some of the principles of trauma sensitive yoga. So if you go to a yoga studio and they're playing music and they're saying namaste, that's fine. Um, 
since you've already gotten the foundation from yoga for first responders, you can just kind of apply it to any yoga class you want to take. In addition to that, we are working to be launched at the beginning of 2020 um, out of demand really is our own online academy um, with that has an accompanying app. So you can have our classes on demand um, whenever you need them. So that should be launched at the beginning of 2020. And that's because of that exact question that you asked is um, either a department wants yoga for first responders and there isn't a trained teacher in their town as of yet, um, or they're getting it once a week and their members want, want it more. Um, but I think, you know, going to doing any online yoga or a yoga studio, there's no harm in that whatsoever, especially if you have the foundation that we gave you, which is really true traditional yoga. You know, in, in India, where I studied, how that works is instead of going once a week to your to a studio or to your teacher, you actually go and immerse yourself with your teacher for like two or three months. And then you're supposed to leave and kind of practice for a few months what your teacher taught you or the principles that you really need to work on and then go back and study with your teacher again. So we're kind of almost doing it in that same method where you can get like a 12-week program in a department, really dive into it so then you can continue on on your own. Right. This is almost like adopting a meditation practice. Yeah. And, you know, the biggest thing I hear from my students is, the little practices, the little breath work stuff that leads to, we call meditation neuro reset or neurological reset. Cause that's basically what you're doing, you know, and they take those breath work techniques and the neuro reset or meditation techniques, and they use them to go to sleep in their bunk room at night, or they use it if they're hyped up, if there was a, a dropped call. So they're already knowing how to take, and this is exactly the way it's supposed to work. I'm not asking you to roll out a mat for another 60 minutes, which is our typical time, because you asked about time too. Typically 60 minutes plus or minus, uh, depending on the situation. But what I'm trying to teach is that you can take a three minute breath work or meditation and plug it in daily or multiple times a day because it's really that consistency that's going to make a difference. Not one yoga class a week, but three minutes of breath work every day. That's how you regulate your nervous system. Right. There's so much to be gained here from your program. It's I know it's not a stretching program, but you are going to get more mobile and flexible, I imagine. Yeah. You're going to have this meditation program. You're going to find time throughout the day to breathe intentionally and be more mindful and manage the stress. So I know you mentioned that. There's a lot of breath work involved. What is the importance of intentional breathing? And do you have any simple techniques that we can use to get out of a stress state? Yeah, 100%. I think breathing, especially in fire service, is, I mean, it's valuable for, for everyone practicing this tool. But I think for fire service, especially, breathing is, is the lifeline, you know. And, and also, that's going to kind of really filter into everything else. So you mentioned the mobility. Mobility, 100% is going to improve with this. But why? It's because we're combining the mobility exercises with breathing. If you hold your breath and clench your jaw and try to touch your toes, your body is going to be like, up. Oh, I'm not breathing. I'm in, a, I'm in a threat. My life's in danger. So it's going to tighten up even more. But if you're doing the breath work techniques that we teach while you're moving the body, then the body gets the signal, I'm okay, I'm safe. And it'll start to open up the, the tissue, the fascia, and the joints. So that's why breath is so important for mobility. Now, for um, 
for stressful situations, the golden nugget of our foundational breathing techniques, we have many different techniques, but they're all founded in this one technique called three-part breath. And many of my students tell me that they use it on the fire ground, off the fire ground all the time. Very, very simple. And on the Yoga for First Responders YouTube page, there are a couple tutorials for three-part breath, just a couple minutes long if you want a reminder. But there's three ingredients to calming the nervous system. And I know this can be hard wearing an SCBA to breathe through the nose, but if you can at least try to inhale through the nose as best you can, I know that can be difficult, but let's say you're not wearing your SCBA, you're just, you know, in the firehouse or whatever. Breathing through the nose, breathe, initiating the breath in the belly as if the belly's a balloon, and then extending the exhale so it's longer than the inhale. Those are the three ingredients to calm your nervous system right away. So if you ever feel like you're kind of borderline, might be going down a panic or anxiety, sort of out of control feeling, immediately start breathing through your nose, take a giant breath so your belly expands like a balloon, count in for three and out for five. That makes sure that your exhale is longer than your inhale. All of those things grab hold of the autonomic nervous system and puts the your machine, your nervous system machine, in calm and controlled mode. Now, that's sort of the foundation. And then three-part breath is a little continuing on from that. You initiate the breath in the belly. So if you put your hands on your belly, I, I even like to put one hand on my low back so I feel the 360-degree cylinder of my torso expand. Not just the front, but the whole thing. Some people find this easier to do laying down or seated versus standing. But you inhale and the, the low belly, like below your belly button, inflates like a balloon. You continue to inhale and the rib cage opens up like you're stretching an accordion open. You continue to inhale and you breathe all the way up to your collarbones, not shoulders. Shoulders are down, but collarbones. Then when you exhale, you want to imagine you're exhaling from the top third so the chest area, then the second third, the ribs, and then you complete the exhale in the bottom third, the belly and kidney area. So you're breathing in thirds, and it's not staccato, it's not inhale, 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 it's really smooth, but you're inhaling from the bottom third, middle, all the way up to the chest, and then you exhale chest, ribs, and belly. Now I know this sounds extremely simple, but that's why it gets dismissed so much because it is simple. I'm not asking you to do this huge complicated thing that's going to do this magic trick on you. The magic trick's going to happen with the simple exercise of three-part breath using those ingredients of nose breathing, belly breathing, and extending the length of the exhale. Now, don't just do it twice and be like, hey, I don't feel better. I mean, you have to like try it for a minute. Try it for a minute. Try it for two minutes. I always say three minutes is the best practice. Is the the best practice if you can. And and if you do three minutes consistently, you will be able to access your nervous system in just a couple of breaths. So a good meditation that's simple. And check this out, Nick. No one needs to know you're doing it. So if you have a crew that's kind of tough on you a little bit or giving you some crap about doing yoga or whatever, then you can do it sitting in the chair, watching a movie with your crew, and you can look at your clock and do three minutes of this exercise. Sounds very similar to what I like to practice, which is the four, seven, eight breathing. It's really about that long yeah. exhale that's going to activate that parasympathetic state. So, you know, four, seven, eight breathing is a traditional yoga breathing, yoga breath. And we do that all the time. And I add, I'll up level it for you. I actually add a, a five second hold at the end. 
So I do four, seven, eight, five. Um, and if you try that, it kind of, it, uh, lifts the CO2, which is going to make O2 a little bit more effective. So give that a try next time. That sounds great. And if you're into like heart rate variability, you can see this type of breathing increase your HRV scores like in real time. So it's, 100%. it's basically science backed. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's totally science backed. And we use HRV a lot and I have some of their software and we hook our students up and have them change their breathing patterns. And you show that they are going into a more coherent state. Um, so yeah, so it's, you can see this stuff happen in real time. And then once you see that, you know, it's happening when you do it on your own time. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, a good, a good breath work. you know, they, they say for real ultimate coherence, you want to breathe about six breaths per minute. So if you breathe in for three, hold for two and exhale for five, that's going to equal six breaths per minute. So I call that coherency breath for that reason. Yeah. And just a quick tip that I like to use is whenever the tones go off for a run, that's a good time as a reminder to do some breathing techniques. That's a great thing to do too. And I did, I rode along with FDNY one time and it's funny, even when you're, you know, lights and sirens, you're still going like two miles an hour in the middle of New York city because there's so much traffic. So I had time to talk to them as you know, they're putting their, their bunks on and, and one guy said, God, I, I, I've been doing this for years, but my, my breath still gets activated no matter what. So as he was putting on his pack and everything, I was guiding him through this breath work. I said, and you have the time to do this. You're sitting in the truck as they're, as they're leaving. You can do this while you're putting your, your bunks on. So right? thinking out loud here, mindfulness to me is living moment to moment without future planning or regretting past events. Mm-hmm. What does mindfulness mean to you? And do you have any tips for being more mindful in our lives? Yeah. And I'm so glad you asked because I have a chip on my shoulder about mindfulness and I'll tell you why. Mindfulness is always talked about and, and ta- taught in such this conceptual way that no one has a cl- real clear understanding. I mean, I'm generalizing that no one, obviously you, you do and you practice it, but you know, no one has a clear understanding of what it is. If I asked you how to tie a knot, you'd say one, two, three, four, five, done right? You would tell me exactly how to do it. But then if I ask someone what's mindfulness, they kind of have this general idea. And I really would love to flip the script that everyone knows how to train and practice mindfulness, just like they know how to tie their knots, you know, and make it that important of a training tool. So here are my ingredients for mindfulness. And this is inspired and kind of altered uh, from Kelly McGonigal, who I don't know if you've heard of her, but she wrote The Upside of Stress, um, which is how to use stress as your tool rather than your enemy. So I like to define uh, mindfulness uh, with three ingredients, intention, action, and awareness. And if you have those three ingredients, you can practice anything mindfully. And there's some techniques there out there like yoga, they're supposed to be mindfulness techniques, but those of us who practice yoga a lot actually are the most susceptible to not practicing it mindfully. You know, it's really the beginner, the beginner's mind that's really in that moment because they don't know what the heck's coming next. Right. So those of us who practice it a lot are making our grocery list as we're in down dog, you know, so you have to have an intention and even what, and the intention could be to sit. That's fine. Or the intention could be to wash these dishes or the intention could be for me to be talking to you and fully in this conversation with you right now. That's the intention. Then there has to be an action toward that intention. And here's the caveat. That action has to involve 
the mind, body, and nervous system all working in coherence toward the intention. So my body has no choice but to be in the room that I'm sitting in right now, but my mind and my nervous system can be somewhere else. So where, where whatever my mind is thinking about, if it's an argument I had or something stressful with work, whatever it is, my nervous system is going to react to that versus where I am in the present moment physically, right? And sometimes that reaction of my nervous system is, has, makes no sense to where I am physically. So if I'm here in this safe space, but I'm thinking about something difficult, I might start having stress or crying or whatever, which makes no sense with, since I'm in a safe space physically, right? So you have to have the mind and nervous system with your physical body in that moment. And then you need an awareness surrounding that action. So awareness by John Kabat-Zinn, the definition is paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment. So anything that you do can have those three ingredients. You can be washing dishes with intention, action, and awareness. You can be sitting watching someone speak with intention, action, and awareness. And if you have those three ingredients, anything can be practiced mindfully. So I think that my um, advice for that is uh, to practice mindfulness anywhere first, you need to be able to actually be mindful of your own mind and your own thoughts and separate yourself from them. So I like to call this exercise, catch the mind, where basically put a timer on for, you know, if you have one of those timers that maybe every 30 seconds gives a little beep for like three minutes or whatever. And for the first 30 seconds, See if you can truly observe what's happening in this moment. I see right now I'm seeing a man on the street. I'm seeing about four cars over there, right? And then also watch what your mind does. Watch it as if you're watching the street in front of me right now. Oh, look at my mind's thinking about my move. My mind is thinking about this person and watch it without trying to stop it. And then when the beeper goes off again after 30 seconds, Start doing breathing techniques, any one that we already listed, which is a way of taking your, your puppy mind from running around and forcing it to focus on one specific thing, which is counting your breath, right? And then when the beeper goes off again, let your mind wander and watch it. So you're actually being mindful of your own thoughts instead of judging them or saying, you know, a lot of people tell me I can't meditate because I, my mind goes crazy. Well, if you watch your mind go crazy, then you are being mindful. You are in that moment watching what your mind is doing. So instead of trying to fight your mind, use it as a tool. And then you can start applying those same concepts to, to bigger things like yoga. Yeah, so you're just observing with that non-judgmental awareness. Right. It's a silly example, but I just realized this on Saturday. I was making pizzas at the firehouse, and I'm sitting there putting pepperonis on this giant pizza, and it's taking forever, you know, with those little pepperonis. But I'm like, why am I just running through the motions on this? Why can't I just be here and, you know, enjoy the placement of every one of these pepperonis? And it actually became kind of therapeutic. Yeah, no, it's not silly at all. I mean, that's that's why people don't do it, because they don't realize that you can – find mindfulness in, in a small mundane thing like that. They don't realize that. They think that if you're going to practice yoga or mindfulness, okay, first I need a mountain. I need a sunset. I need perfect weather. And I need to be, you know, in cl like robes and sitting there. And I mean, that's the, that's the poster that everyone thinks of as yoga and mindfulness. 
yoga and mindfulness can be found in making a pizza. It has to be found there. And if it's because if it's not, we're not going to ever find it in anything. So I think that's a that's a, a great example. And, and sometimes I like to to sort of stop and almost wherever I am in the moment, like even right now, if I just stopped and be like, oh, my God, if I'm if almost like I'm watching my life like a, like a movie here, I am right now. And two years ago, I wasn't in this place. I was in, I was in another place, but here I am right here. It's kind of this trippy experience of like watching yourself. But I think that is what awareness and mindfulness is, is separating yourself from being so involved in your own body and ego and kind of separating yourself and, and watching everything happen. Like you said, the big key is without the judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no right or wrong. Just try to sit in the moment and, and let the thoughts come in and out and, and be okay with that. And I think saying um, there's no right or wrong is a really good, you know, a really necessary uh, tool for mindfulness, because if you think about it, nothing inherently is right or wrong. It's what we, we project on it that makes it right or wrong, you know? And so yep. if you can take that moment even if, in, in how you're practicing mindfulness, take away the right or wrongness of it and just let it live. And that's practicing mindfulness and awareness. And, you know, the, the thing is, is, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, it's a practice forever. It's not something you ever master um, because I, I teach this stuff, I practice it. And do people still tick me off? Yes. <laughs> do situations still stress me out? Yes. But what the difference is after practicing this is that I can identify that now before I react to it. So it's not like I'm not feeling the feeling of stress or overwhelm or sadness. It's that I feel it. I can look at it for what it is and then respond before I emotionally react and, and maybe do something I regret. Right. That reminds me of that Viktor Frankl quote that's in between stimulus and response. There's a space mm -hmm. and that's where you use your reason. Right. So just a couple more questions for you. If you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? Oh my gosh. Let's see. Anyone in history, who would I choose and why? Okay. Maybe this is just because the 4th of July just happened. But the first person that popped in my head was Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> and uh, I heard this whole talk about him on Sunday because of the 4th of July stuff. And maybe any one of our founding fathers. And, you know, for me, doing yoga for first responders is I created something out of nothing. And a lot of it feels swimming upstream because of a huge culture that is swimming one way and I'm trying to introduce something new. Right. And it's a, a, a heck of a lot of effort. And some days you feel great about it because you really great, great response. And some days it's more work than it feels reward. And, you know, and I, I asked myself, Oh God, sometimes I just want to go and do my own yoga rather than trying to introduce yoga to so many people and really try to convince them why, why can't I just sort of let them live their life and I just go and do yoga for the benefits I know that it provides. But what was inspiring to me recently about hearing the talks about our founding fathers is that they also created something out of nothing. I'm sure it was very 
scary to commit treason against their own country. Um, I'm sure it was more of an uphill battle than what they thought the reward would be. But here we are, here we are living in the United States. And um, I don't know. I just, I would love to not talk about the sit down and have a drink and not talk about like, okay, the, the, the big logistical elements of doing something new and how did you get these people together? And how to, but the, how did, what were you thinking every day when you woke up and went to sleep at night? How did you, did you have doubt? Was it scary? Would you, did you want to throw your hands in the air? How was your relationships with your, with your spouse? Um, sort of really what was going on internally, mind, body, and soul for these men and their spouses who were flipping the world upside down. Um, because, you know, I, I have, I have those conflicts with myself where I feel like I'm putting so much effort into, and I'm, you know, I, I can imagine public safety feel the same way. You're putting so much effort into other people, you know, and to serving mm -hmm. other people that I, sometimes I just find myself being like, what about me? And then I realized, I actually, I kind of had this realization this morning, there was, oh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but one of my students introduced me to, uh, I'll see if I can remember his name, um, to a, a great motivational speaker. Uh, and I realized after watching this video that she sent me was that that's up to me. The what about me? What about like my yoga and my sustainability is no one's going to take care of that but me. It's my job to do my breath work. It's my job to do practice my yoga. It's my job to have my recovery and unplug time because no one's going to, none of my students or my operations team in YFFR are going to say, Hey, Olivia, did you get enough sleep? Did you make sure to do your practice today? Did you journal today? Or no one's going to do that. So it's up to you. And so I'd love to talk to Thomas Jefferson about like, how did you live your life every single day with this huge, huge thing that you brought upon yourself? So that's my answer. <laughs> that's a really great answer. Okay, so last question. What are your daily non-negotiables? Things that no matter what will always get done. Before I answer that, I just realized that I just like compared creating the United States to yoga for first responders and that was not my <laughs> intention. <laughs> but anyway, um, so my daily non-negotiables, that's a good one and I feel like I that's something I need to actually improve upon, to be honest with you, because sort of going off what I said before, so many other things can yank you around, right? Depending on what kind of emails you're getting or phone calls or whatever, your, your emotions and mental state can be yanked left or right. So you really do need these non-negotiable anchors in your day to, um, to keep you steady. One thing that is really important to me is a slow morning and a morning ritual. I'm not one of those entrepreneur lady bosses, like people I, I do know and have much admiration for that get up at five in the morning. They are on an exercise bike at six and by seven, they're at their computer. For me, I like to wake up a little bit slower. I like to have my coffee. And another thing I like to do before I hit work is something for myself, whether it's journaling, whether it's reading whether it's my breath work, whether it's simply sitting on my patio and looking out, you know, and, and having that mindfulness, I need to have something to set up my day for myself first. Sometimes it's even taking a sort of a longer shower and even doing breath work in the shower. That's a great time to do it as well. Um, I, I, I don't like getting up and jumping into my day like that because I feel that the work 
owns me. Mm-hmm. So instead, I prefer a slower morning and working a little bit later in the day. Um, another thing that uh, has come to be a, a non-negotiable is that um, I like to have dinner with my, my partner, Eric, at the end of the day. So if he's hungry or I'm hungry, we have a snack and wait for each other to finish work and then we eat together. So I think having those caps, the slow, the slow ritualistic morning and then a meal together at the end kind of caps the day for me. Awesome. All right, Olivia, thank you so much for the conversation and for everything you're doing to contribute to the fire service. I'm excited to uh, try to bring yoga for first responders to the department that I work for. So where can people go to learn more about you and are you on social media? Yes, I'm all over the socials. So yoga for first responders, our website is yoga for first responders, all spelled out dot O-R-G. Same name on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, yoga for first responders. Um, me personally is Olivia Mead, O-L-I-V-I-A-M-E-A-D. My website is Lois Lane of yoga.com and same name for uh, Facebook and Instagram is at Lois Lane of yoga. There's so much that we didn't get to touch on today. So hopefully we can talk again. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, uh, check out the YouTube page. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's good to listen to in your bunk room to try to get to sleep for that purpose. And um, we're going to have that online academy soon. And we have a newsletter. So definitely we love people staying in touch with us. It's the best way to see all the new things that we have coming out to support fire service because I'm here to support you and what you guys are doing. Um, which I have absolute appreciation and gratitude for. Oh, thank you for saying that. All right. Thanks, Nick. Talk soon.